to thank Gil for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here. I've never been to Charlottesville before. I for the lecture, but stay for the basketball game. <laughs> <laughs> um, I always wanted to stand up in front of a group of law students and talk about film. So who remembers the paper chase? John Hausman, Timothy Bottoms, or John Hausman says to, to Mr. Hart, Mr. Hart, here is a dime. Call your mother. Just, that was like one of my lifetime goals to stand up. And, and do that. So it was once attributed to a Chinese proverb, but it actually, I think, was Ben Franklin who said, if you tell me something, I'll forget. If you teach me something, I may remember, but if you engage me, I will learn. So while I have a lot of slides and a lot of things to talk about, interrupt me, stop me, ask me questions. Let's get engaged in a dialogue. And for the next hour or so, I'm going to ask you to do something that you probably don't do in law school classes is spend your disbelief because what you're going to see is all true except for things that are untrue otherwise I wouldn't have anything to talk about <laughs> but it's quite remarkable what you will hear about some of the things that have gone on in the last 30 or 40 years it's called 3.0 because in the last six months or so I've revised the talk with new fraud that has come out new examples of dishonesty so it's actually a very very fluctuating and moving target. As I said, I love films, so if anybody has a question and can cite a film reference, Gil has offered his tickets for the rest of the basketball season and a free trip to the Final Four. So, <laughs> bring it. So this preview is going to prove for all audiences. I was going to call this film The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, because you'll see some of a little bit of all of that in this talk, it's really quite remarkable. Here's what's on today's docket. The world of academic publishing, the big three of medical dishonesty, Drs. Rubin, Fuji, and Bolt. Sounds kind of like a law firm, doesn't it? <laughs> Retractions, or as I say, my bad. Peer pressure, breakfast cereal, iPhones, and publishing. That'll keep you thinking for about 20 minutes to try to figure it out some analysis and future implications and what's been called shining a light. So we're going to talk about the world of academic publishing to give some context. So this comes from the Association for Scientific, Technical, and Medical Publishers. They put out a report every couple of years. It's about five or 600 pages. This is the professional organization of scientific, medical, and technical publishers. There are 120 different members in 21 countries, and they publish about two-thirds of all the scientific and medical literature. So the difference between scholarly publishing and journalistic publishing is that it's peer-reviewed, and it's your own material. And I see the, the warning up there about uh, honesty. Well, it's particularly applicable when it comes to scientific literature. There are four reasons why people publish scientific literature. One is registration. Putting your flag in the ground. I own this thought. I own this idea. The next is dissemination. Getting it out to people who need to see it. Usually based on the brand identity of the journal. In other words, the New England Journal of Medicine or the University of Virginia Law Review have a certain degree of prominence where others may not. So that's very important. Certification, either through quality control, which we're going to talk about in a little while, and through peer review, which is a substantial portion of this talk because it's fundamentally flawed. And we're going to talk about what's wrong with it, the consequences of that, and what to do about it. 
and an archival record, preserving a fixed version of it so that other people can find it. How big is this market? The English STM market is $10 billion a year, and it's growing at about a 25% rate in five years. It employs about 110,000 people. There are about 10,000 medical publishers, and it's a seven to nine million person body of researchers. So you take all the academics in the country and in the world who do English language research, seven to nine million people, it's a gigantic market. 28,000 papers in the English language, more than 6,000 in foreign languages, two and a half million articles a year, and two and a half billion downloads of scholarly content. I mean, is there a day that anyone in this room doesn't go online to pull an article or pull a journal or anything like that? I mean, that's why this is such a ridiculously high number. In the old days, when Gil and I were in school, I was in law school in 1980, Lexus hadn't been invented, Westlaw hadn't been invented, we had these things called libraries. And you actually had to go into the dusty stacks in the library to do your legal research. And it was, you, know, you literally had to go in with a respirator because it was so ancient. And we're going to talk about the difference between peer review and citations and shepherds. Does shepherds even exist anymore? I mean, talk to me about how this works. You had your hand up. No, I was saying it's sort of existed, okay. but online. Um, so, how can you track the history of a reported decision? How does that work now? It's electronic. You go to a database like Westlaw or Lexis, and it's, it's just like Shepherd's, but it's all done electronically for you. So there's never a question as to the validity of a particular case at a particular time. Correct. And how far back does that go? Infinitely. <laughs> Is it accurate? Almost. Okay. So the difference was if you went into a law library and you pulled a book off the shelf, and there's Marbury versus Madison, and you look at it, and you don't have any idea how many years afterwards, whether that case is still good law, whether it's been questioned, whether it's been uh, reversed, or someone's agreed with it. Now, we're going to talk about how that differs radically from medical research. What are, what are publishers or authors' motivations to publish? Obviously, to get more money for research, to further their career, and for prestige. Can anyone think of any other reasons? Because they have, yes, a lot of Right, there's certainly financial incentives. I mean, within your own institution, the more you publish, the higher your rise through the academic rankings. Uh, anyone else? Yes? I mean, you want to demonstrate something is a valuable procedure that should be expanded? Right, right. That's the putting the stake in the ground and showing, you know, I invented this. And it, this is aside from the intellectual property side of it. This, this is the journalistic side of it. That's, that's exactly right. So here's somebody talking to one of the researchers about an NIH grant that says, you're completely free to carry out any research you want as long as you come to these conclusions. It's what people refer to as publish or perish. You have to put out papers. And this is from the Israeli University. And you can see the transition from part-time faculty to associate faculty to tenured faculty. talk about three researchers who did publish, but also perished. So we're going to talk about the big three of medical dishonesty. Dr. Rubin. 
Somehow I found photos of each one of these guys smiling, and I think it probably was the last time they were ever seen smiling. <laughs> You'll find out why. So he was, a, he was a big deal. He was a professor of anesthesiology at Bay State in Springfield, and he was a pioneer of multimodal anesthesia, using different drugs to deal with uh, pain issues, mostly surgical acute pain. And he was educated both at Columbia and SUNY Buffalo, and he was a peer reviewer. He was the real deal. He was an important academic researcher. His research talked about the use of NSAIDs. Advil is an NSAID. That's the simplest one I can, I can talk about. But he was talking about the use of two prescription medications, Celebrex and Lyrica, rather than using opioids and other pain medications. And his conclusions were that the combination improves long-term pain control. They work. They're better than using fentanyl or methadone or any other prescription narcotics. And his work was actually published in all of the major journals, both in anesthesia and in orthopedics. So in 2009, things started to surface that over the 13 years of his research, at least 21 of his publications had falsified data and forged signatures. He added people as co-authors on his papers who had nothing to do with the papers. Does anybody have a problem with that? So base faith is an internal investigation. The academic community started to hear rumblings that there's something that isn't kosher about Dr. Rubin's work. Part of the problem was all of his results were great. All of his results showed that these NSAIDs were worlds better than all of the existing pharmacology that was out there. And that becomes something that you have to focus on. And what was unusual about his problem was that all of his research had such dramatic results. Usually people will publish some things that maybe their, their results are soft, they're a little fuzzy, but his was so great. Everything was so profoundly wonderful, it didn't make any sense. And in fact, one of his, his uh, co-authors was given a copy of a paper at the medical conference, and that was the first time he had, he had ever seen it, and his name was on it. What was his motivation? He was working for a drug company that made Celebrex and Lyrica. It's actually a doctor at Northwestern, where my daughter goes to school, so I'm a little bit embarrassed about that. Northwestern's uh, endowment is funded about 75% by the sales and licensing of Lyrica, where it was invented. <coughs> so there's a huge amount of money in academic medicine. All 21 of his papers were retracted. So, Dr. Rubin had published a lot in the uh, journal called ANA, Anesthesia and Analgesia, which is really the, the major anesthesia journal. And the editor-in-chief was a guy named Steve Schaefer. You may recognize Steve if you were watching television about uh, 15 years, 10, maybe 10 years ago. Remember the Conrad Murray trial, the Michael Jackson death case? Conrad Murray was the expert on behalf of the state Sorry, Steve Schaefer was the expert on behalf of the state against Conrad Murray. One of the questions that they raised in the defense was, did Michael Jackson kill himself by drinking propofol instead of getting it injected? And he was the expert on propofol and came in and talked about the fact that that doesn't happen. Well, Steve said in ANA that Dr. Rubin's work published in his journal left a huge gaping hole in what we know about this field. And he said it was a tragedy for everybody because his results were garbage. Here's the law and order section. 
So he was indicted by the U.S. Attorney in Boston. If you get a certified letter from the U.S. Attorney in Boston, you're in trouble because that's the center of the healthcare fraud prosecution section of the U.S. Attorney's Office. The maximum sentence was fairly substantial, and the impact was that there actually were 100, study, 100 people one arm on the study and 100 people on the other arm. It was a two-arm study. One was people taking Celebrex, the other was people taking the traditional medication. So how many actual people do you think participated in the study? Think about it. There were supposed to be 200, 100 on each side. Does anybody have any idea how many actually participated? Zero. Zero. He never did the work. The whole thing is a sham. It's, it's really quite remarkable. So what happened to him? Steve says, I hope they throw the book at him. Well, they kind of did. He got six months in club fed, a low security federal prison, a fine, supervised release, and he had to pay a lot of money to both the drug company who paid him to do the research that he never actually did. And he was tagged as a felon. He lost his Massachusetts license. And the FDA gave him what's called the death penalty, which meant he couldn't do any research on FDA-controlled medications. What do you think about the penalty? I mean, think about the significance of this and whether you think this was reasonable or not. What do you think? Yes? Well, it doesn't um, recompense any of the people who were treated falsely uh, right. as a result of his research. So right. it doesn't seem like enough. Yeah, it seems to me like he got off pretty easy. That this is really not a not a uh, a penalty that was commensurate with what he did. Yes. Well, it's, it says he's following a plea bargain. So what did he put on the table? You know. I don't know what the back and forth was, but this is what they ultimately ended up with. And I think the vast majority of people convicted of healthcare fraud end up taking a plea bargain, so they don't end up mm -hmm. uh, going to trial over this. Actual prison. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. That's the issue. So he paid the price. Scientific American referred to him as the birdie made off of medical research. Let's talk about bachelor number two, Dr. Fuji. I guess that's a smile, but we'll go with it. So he was a recognized expert on vomiting, post-operative nausea and vomiting. He conducted studies in Tokyo and published 212 papers over a very substantial period of time. So a few years later, the Japanese equivalent of the ASA, the Japanese Society of Anesthesiologists, started to hear rumblings again. So they did their own investigation. Out of the 212 papers, 172 used falsified data. 37 were inconclusive, but three were fine. Three were good. <laughs> and we gotta give credit where credit's due. Three were legitimate papers <laughs> with legitimate research. 126 of those were really substantially, you know, they were, they were sophisticated studies. They were double-blind, randomized, controlled studies. So the setup of the studies was great. The fact that 172 of them used falsified data was the real problem. And they were published again in ANA, and here comes Steve, and you know, it's all on his face, because manuscripts contained data which showed no resemblance to the actual data of the patients he did the studies on. So how was this discovered? Well, a reviewer in one of the journals saw it and realized that it was plagiarized. One of the articles was plagiarized. So they go back to him and they say, hey, it's plagiarized, and that starts the investigation. So they had to withdraw 24 papers. A journal reviewed the data and found that the chances of all of his data being legit were 1 times 10 to the 30th power. 
pretty bad. It's pretty bad. The problem was it was 12 years after the papers were published. Again, the studies were incredibly nice. The data looked really, really good. It should have set up a red flag. So what did he do to avoid detection? He pivoted. He shifted gears. He went to orthopedic journals and non-anesthesia journals. And he was deceptive and ambiguous as to dates and IRB involvement and study sites. Study sites. He knew how to gain the system, and people kept publishing his stuff. Do you start to see a pattern here? You know, you put out garbage in a prominent journal, and you can keep putting out garbage. It's, it's really quite astonishing. So 23 journals, not 23 papers, 23 journals had to retract. So his co-authors, who had nothing to do with it, were cleared. The signatures on most of those were found to be forged. And his contributions were totally debunked. But what was interesting is some of the co-authors who had nothing to do with that found out about the articles, and they put them on tenure applications at their respective universities. So they took credit for being part of defrocked articles that they actually had nothing to do with. And there's Dr. Bolt. Dr. Bolt was German. He published 200 papers on hydroxyethyl starch, which, you know, we can talk about this. It's used in the OR. It's a, it's a fluid management drug used in the operating room. It's, it's fairly common, right? And it's inexpensive, which makes it frequently used. So according to the manufacturer of his, of, of hydroxyethyl starch, the impact of his research affected a few people, a lot of people, 30 million people were affected by the research that he conducted on hydroxyethyl starch. So he puts out a paper, there's a head-to-head -head comparison, claiming that hydroxyethyl starch patients had decreased inflammation, decreased damage, and everything was all safe. Well, several readers questioned it. We're going to talk about post-publication peer review, and this is where it all comes up. That some of the data looked bad, so they went back and took a look at it, they said to Dr. Bolt, hey, can you validate some of these numbers? They don't make any sense. And he disappeared once the heat was turned up. The problem was his funding came from the manufacturers of hydroxyethyl starch. Now, it's okay to do that, but what do you need to do to ensure the academic legitimacy of research when it's funded by a manufacturer? What do you have to do? Disclose, right. Waive the conflict of interest. If you say I'm working for this company, the results probably are going to come out the way that company would like to see them, but you need to talk about it. And we're going to talk about conflicts of interest in a little bit. So they had to retract it in all of those journals, and this is what it was said. There was no informed consent, there was no IRB approval, there was no randomization, no follow-up questionnaires, so they had to pull all of that back. They hadn't done any of the predicate work for legitimate, controlled, peer-reviewed research. Can you imagine handing in any kind of paper in any, you know, undergrad, high school, where all of the predicate acts that need to be done, which you're talking about in great detail, were never done? What's the Spanish word for this, cajones? <laughs> so they had to retract it, and this is an interesting way of how they figured out that this was illegitimate. So they went back to the hospital, there was no lab data in the hospital that matched any of the data in the paper. The perfusionists, who were the people in the operating room who give that drug, said they'd never used it. The pharmacy had never delivered it to the operating room. There were no lab tests which would have confirmed the results in the study. There were forged signatures, 
and there's no convincing evidence that this study ever was real. And as it turns out, hydroxyethyl starch actually causes an increased risk of kidney transplant, not a reduced risk. And it causes an increased risk of death, not the reduced risk which he claimed in all the papers. So this stuff is a disaster, and this is what has subsequently happened. So these 30 million patients have been put at risk because of this bogus research. How does it happen? Again, the same way. He talked about using a private external IRB. There were no checks and balances in this whole thing. It just didn't work. Pre-publication peer review didn't catch it, and the editor-in-chief didn't catch it. So at this point, what do you think is a better way of doing this? What do you think, is, since pre-publication peer review in a substantial journal with important people as the peer reviewers, what's the better way? <coughs> Wikipedia, post-publication peer review, so that people who are involved in the process can actually look at this and say, this doesn't smell right, it doesn't sound right. And there are pros and there are cons, and we're going to get into some of those. So here's the epilogue. A hundred articles are retracted, and it raises some really substantial questions. Did he experiment on kids without their consent, or their parents' consent, or were these studies actually never done? And now we're going to talk about ME. Does anybody even know what ME is? Myalgic encephalomyelitis, otherwise known as chronic fatigue syndrome. Something that law students get during exam week. So this was actually written by Julie Raymeyer, who was a chronic fatigue syndrome patient. We're going to talk about the PACE study, about, you know, go through the whole name of it, but it was a randomized trial of what you do to treat chronic fatigue syndrome versus what they do now. It was published in The Lancet, which is one of the preeminent medical journals in the world, and it was a fairly expensive study. It cost $8 million, lots of patients, unblinded, controlled, peer-reviewed, and it took place at Queen Mary University in London. The conclusions were two. One, that the two treatments which they recommended were exercise and go to see a psychologist makes the treatment effective and it makes the conditions get better. And in fact, if you follow either of those two, you have a 60% chance of getting better and a 20% chance of getting completely better and having a recovery of your symptoms. Well, the impact of the PACE study was bad, bad uh, typing, sorry. Seemingly impressive study was conducted and it was supported by a lot of these other institutions. And it's also considered an orphan disease. It's not a disease that catches a lot of attention. And traditionally, patients have, with this disease have been sort of a loud vocal group, and, and they, have, they have a critical mass of support. So what happened was a couple of scientists some patients and some science writers decided they were going to do the Wizard of Oz thing. You're going to take Dorothy and the Cowardly Lion and the Scarecrow and the Tin Man, you're going to pick them up. We're going to have two Oz references, by the way. You can wait for the second one. And you're going to start questioning the validity of the study because the patients knew this was wrong because patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, when you exercised, you actually got worse. And the study said if you exercise, you will get better and possibly be cured. So what happened? There was a grassroots resistance to the study, and it started out with the patients.
So the primary endpoints were patient self-report, do you feel better, not what are the objective reports. There were no changes in the objective criteria, unfortunately. The definitions for recovery were loosened so you, they could skew the data. And the physical function to be recovered actually was the physical function that an 80-year-old person would have. So you can see it's, it's, it's pretty skewed. So what the patients do, they wrote blogs, they got the press involved, they had letters and commentaries, they filed FOIA requests with the university. So if you don't like the message, what happens? The university called these claims vexatious. If you don't like the message, there's something wrong with the person requesting the data. Patients were called unhinged crusaders. And this is particularly hurtful because some people with chronic fatigue syndrome have a stigma attached to them that people think that CFS is all in your head. And there were other excuses. So the Lancet had to respond. So the editor-in-chief of the Lancet comes out and says, you know what happened? These people hijacked legitimate research. Is this the right way to respond? No, it's a terrible way to respond. So science catches on. So Ray Meyer and other people decide to come out and do their own research. So there's this guy Berkeley, Cal Berkeley named David Tuller, who publishes an online blog who blows the study out of the water. It's his own expense, no institutional support, no legal support. His analysis caught the attention of scientists worldwide, and 41 scientists implored the Lancet to uncover the data so they could do their own in independent investigation. I'm sorry, I'm way. So court orders release of raw data. And it turns out that the university did its own reanalysis and found that the results were worse. The 22% recovery was bogus. In fact, it was a statistical dead heat. What they proposed was no better than non-treatment. And it's all likely that this was placebo effect anyway. So it's a bad study, needs to be retracted. And Ron Davis at Stanford said, I'd like to use this as a teaching tool. I'd like to take it to med students and say, this is exactly what you don't want to do. So it's a phenomenal teaching tool. So this is where we get to retractions. I love pictures of doctors behind bars. Can I just have a question here? Sure. <coughs> so this blogger who exposed, this restaurant in this blog exposed the study, how did he get access? If the, if the data wasn't available, all the FOIAs were rejected. What was it that he was able to identify that no one else in the public? Some had? of the FOIAs were ultimately, they, there was a okay. FOIA fight over this, and ultimately the raw data was released, and the university, when it did its own reevaluation, released the, the underlying data as well. That's okay, a great gotcha. question. So everybody was able to reanalyze it and found out that it was garbage. <laughs> so these are real retraction stories. They're quite amazing. Andy Anderson in Texas does a study on prostate cancer in the British Journal of Virology, multiple sites, military hospitals. The paper was determined to have protocol deviations, meaning that they didn't follow their own plan. And when the co-author was asked about it, he said, I didn't handle it very well. I was so pissed off that I didn't respond in an untimely fashion to the investigation. So they had to retract that article. I call this the Department of Redundancy Department. So in 2010, five doctors had to admit in print that their 2009 article in one journal was actually plagiarized from another 2009 article. So they were plagiarizing each other. That had to be retracted. The Federal Office of Research Integrity had to retract a paper where one doctor was intimidating doctors working under fellows and residents to change the data. 
another retraction, Nature, which is a very substantial scientific journal, had a paper that had to be retracted because it was found to be contrived and falsified. Unfortunately, the correction was typeset poorly and they had to correct the retraction a second time. It happens. And five, there were studies on Divan, an antihypertensive in these two journals, and it was they had to be retracted because the data was manipulated and they failed to disclose industry affiliations. There was a study put out in circulation in 2012 that was retracted a year later because there was compromised data from Harvard. Well, who was responsible for the compromised data? A leading cardiologist who was also an editorial board member on circulation, who was one of the authors, and the editor-in-chief of circulation, who was the other author. So we're going to talk about the right way to retract this. There's a, there's a way to do it, and there's a way not to do it. And you'll see the American way and the Japanese way, and see if you can detect the difference. So primary publication of the American College of Chest Physicians. It's called Chest Magazine. It's a very prominent journal with 19,000 readers. And if you look at their scientific advisory council, it is industry. So these are the companies that give money to the American College of Chest Physicians for their educational value, for their publications. So this is drug companies and manufacturers of devices that are used in treating this type of condition. Well, they have a very large conflict of interest uh, disclosure statement, which every author who has to uh, apply to submit an article has to fill out. So there was an article in 2015 on ventilation, and it was funded by NIH, and we're going to talk about NIH later in the afternoon. And these were prolific authors. This, this author had 127 publications. You can see one had 420. These were prolific authors. And they represented good institutions and trauma centers and med schools around the country. About a, a year later, they were found to have a conflict of interest problem. They failed to disclose that they were funded by one of the companies that makes a ventilator. So they were told about it. They said, oh, it's not that bad. You know, we didn't falsify the data. It's real. We'd like just a correction rather than a retraction. It's kind of the difference between a slap on the wrist and a, a prison sentence. So the editors considered it a three-year ban, and they came up with a strongly worded retraction. And here's the language of the retraction. It's basically, here's the article, and they failed to disclose their conflict, so we're going to pull it. You think that's reasonable? You think that tells you enough about what's there? What doesn't this tell you? What's missing? Anybody? Well, the data was accurate. Okay, good point. Doesn't talk about the data, but the data actually wasn't the reason this was retracted. This the was the cause of the conflict. Sorry? The name of the companies? Correct. It's de identified. The names of the authors, the names of the companies. So they kept it very clean, which is interesting, you'll see the conflict here. So this is actually, this comes from a, an organization called Retraction Watch. There's actually a website when you have absolutely no time to do anything else. Take a look at Retraction Watch. What they've done is they've taken all the retractions that have been done over the last 50 years and they've categorized them. So these are actually the top 10 retractions in the history of medical literature. Starting with when they were published, the year they were retracted, and how many retract, how many times they were cited in the medical literature before they were retracted, 
and how many times they were cited after they were retracted. This is the real staggering thing about it. So we're going to switch over, and I was playing on the plane on the way in. So, for example, this study, which is anybody, it's ileal lymphoid nodular hypoplasia nonspecific colitis pervasive developmental disorder in children, 1998. Does anybody know what that is in English? It's yes. Autism and vaccines. Excellent. Vaccines cause autism. That's number two on the hit parade. It took 12 years to retract that article. And as a result, it was published almost 900 times after it was published. It was repackaged by or cited by somebody else. And it actually was referenced 308 times after it was retracted. And when Gil and I were talking about this yesterday, it's very possible that some of those references were, this is not in keeping with the bad study that has been retracted. But my suspicion is that the vast majority of these are, as Retraction Watch thought, publications which don't make reference to the fact that these previous articles were retracted. But some of these numbers, 700 times after retraction, you know, 200 times. Sometimes articles were, were cited about as many times after they were retracted as they were before they were retracted. And it's a staggering number in the number of years. 12 years, 12 years, 13, 17 years, 11 years. It takes a long time to get through that process. And that's also part of the problem. So we're going to talk about a Happy Meal. So there's a researcher at University of Alabama, Birmingham. He's a biostatistician. And he discovered some exaggerated statistics on a particular Golden Arches restaurant studied in a matter, uh, a journal called <coughs> Childhood Obesity. And he notified the publisher that the data was wrong. He wrote them back and said, you know, this is a problem. But the publisher did the right thing. He pulled the data and it retracted the article. So David Allison decided he has to go on a mission and start looking at erroneous data and conclusions in medical literature. So in 2016, just this last year, he and his group took 25 requests for corrections and retractions over an 18-month period and tried to study how much effect requests to publishers would have. Turns out it's a huge waste of time. Some of the journals acknowledge mistakes, but they weren't going to spend dollars on correcting somebody else's mistake. If you want to do it, you can do it. And in fact, some of the publishers said, if we retract an article, we're going to penalize the author $10,000 because we don't want to pay for it. Why are they reluctant to do so? Why do you think? Why don't publishers not want to come back and say, we have a problem with some of this stuff? Lots of reasons. Makes look bad. Right? Makes them look bad. What else? Yes. Other people won't want to publish in their journals. Right. It becomes a barrier to entering that market, for sure. It's it's, you develop a lot of resistance. How about cost? It's very expensive to publish space, you know, either online or in, in print copies. So it's embarrassment. It illuminates the process. It sheds a light on something that's actually quite bad. It reflects poorly on who? On the people that wrote the article, that edited the article, and the peer reviewers. And these are typically A-list people. They're department chairmen. They come from major institutions. And there aren't enough peer reviewers. You know, the problem is when you get to the top of the pyramid and you're writing real esoteric science, there aren't that many people who can actually judge the quality of your work. They all know each other. They all go to the same country clubs and are in the same locker rooms at, 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 at meetings. And print space is expensive. 
You get egg on your face. It's exactly what happens. It's the journalistic equivalent of that. So this came from that article from UAB. Editors move too slowly. They don't want to do it. It's hard to find out where to send the criticisms, as that study showed. And when concerns are expressed, they rarely trigger any action. Publishers don't, don't want to do it. And even when they're confronted with errors that invalidate the study, they still don't want to do it. Getting the raw data is difficult. And the charge of the whistleblower <coughs> thing. Yes? Is there not, like, a possible legal risk for having published something that is false and could put people in danger. You're reading my slides? <laughs> That's my next slide. There's a huge legal risk all over the place. So here's the problem. There is a gigantic legal risk of damage if you retract it the wrong way, if you make the wrong comment about the original source material. There have been many threats of lawsuits or retractions. So it's another huge disinclination for them to do. It's always the lawyers. Okay, we're going to talk about peer pressure. We're going to kind of race through this if we can. What is peer pressure? It's scrutiny by peers to show the legitimacy of research. 50% of articles that are submitted to peer-reviewed journals are accepted. I'm shocked that the number was that high. I was expecting it to be significantly lower than that. Well, the benefits of peer review, quality assurance, improves the quality of the paper themselves. It filters a journal. You know, when you pick up the New England Journal, you want to know that this is good stuff. This isn't picking up uh, Us Weekly. Stratification of perceived quality of journals. UVA Law Review is better than, sorry, Case Western Reserve Law Review. She's <laughs> 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 got a knife in the back. It directs better articles to better journals and seal of approval and credible versus non-credible. And this is a teaser for what we're going to talk about in a little bit. So here is an article submitted by Dr. Moon. Dr. Moon was asked to suggest reviewers, which is another problem. You hand in a paper and they say, who would you like to review this paper? Does anybody have a problem with that? It's pretty obvious, but that's the way the system has worked. Editorial reviews came back. Some said, this is good. Some said, here's some improvements you, you should make. And some of the reviews actually came back pretty quick. In fact, some of them came back within one day. <laughs> you can never get a paper. I mean, I don't know, when you write a paper for Gil, you might get it back in a day. But, but most papers don't come back in a day. Why? Because it was a scam. So he suggested some of his colleagues, pseudonyms for legitimate research scientists, Gmail and other non-institutional addresses. Jeff Wall at gmail.com is not an institutional address where you ought to be sending it. He suggested that he do it himself. <laughs> I guess if you like your paper a lot, you might as well review it yourself. And the result was 28 papers that cited this paper had to be withdrawn. So he took full responsibility. He did the right thing. He said, you know what? I screwed up. This is bad. But you know what? You need to police yourself and prevent yourself from being duped by people like me. <laughs> it was the blame game. So the editors said, you know, this is the software vendors. The software doesn't have plagiarism checks and doesn't have all of these other safeguards. And the software vendor said, no, it's not us, it's the editors. So you can see people pointing in opposite directions. So here's the crisis in peer review. So there are loopholes in the software. The scholarly journals all use two or three different programs to submit publications. So 
one journal said, you know, the idea of allowing authors to recommend reviewers is nuts and bizarre. And people, again, are using colleagues in the same department, family members, post-grad assistants. And the problem is if most of the legitimate journals don't tag retracted articles, and we're going to talk about that, it's widespread panic. According to Nature, in two years, there were 110 papers that were retracted. That's a lot of literature. And according to the New York Times last year, it's getting worse. And they, they talk about being duped by fraudulent publications. But wait, there's more. Here's an example. Sage is a company that puts out many, many journals. This is the Journal of Vibration and Control. Who knew? <laughs> so Dr. Chen in Taiwan was the primary offending author. Dr. Chen brought in some other author, authors who might have been co-conspirators, and they were submitted using one of these online submission software systems commonly used for manuscripts. And there were all these topics affected, neural networks, fuzzy logic, all this esoteric stuff that I've never heard of. So here's what happens. There's a two-year investigation by the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Vibration and Control. He finds that Dr. Chen did the same thing. He used aliases. He created fraudulent email addresses for his reviewers. And the co-authors were part of the ring, and he had reviewed some of his own papers, and some of his colleagues had reviewed his own papers. He had put out 130 fraudulent email addresses. The education minister in Taiwan was his thesis advisor. So he was tied into it, and it turns out that he was implicated, the prime minister called for an investigation, and it turned out that the Taiwan government funded most of the studies. So they were all wrapped up in this whole thing. So here's what happens. Washington Post, it even hits the Washington Post in 2014. Here's the massive peer review ring. So the fact that this fraud has hit the lay press, it's a big deal. So they put out a notice of retraction, but they come out with this long textual, you know, fabricated and, you know, uncovering a citation ring, compromised data, perverting the peer review process, exploitation. What's different about this? than the chest magazine retraction. Now, what do you think is more effective? And what do you think is more appropriate considering what the offense was? What does this one do that the chest magazine didn't do? It identifies the author. It criticizes what they did. I mean, this is just laying them out. If you do this to us, you don't want to you know, show your face in the medical literature world again. So according to the STM, here's some fixes and some issues. Single blind, that's where one side of the study knows who's involved on the other side of the study. The researchers know, but nobody else knows, versus double blind. So there are de-identification issues, and those are, those are complex issues that we need to talk about. There's a potential for bias. Idiosyncrasies of authorship. Sometimes when a peer reviewer looks at a paper, they can tell whose paper it is because there's a writing style. There are only certain institutions that are doing certain studies. So the fact that it's a blind peer review doesn't always work. So there, there isn't a particular cure for that problem. Oh, the other thing is authors tend to cite their own papers. And they usually cite them high in their bibliography. So you can often tell in medical literature who wrote it without looking at the name. And there are costs for de-identifying the authors, and it's a numbers game. There are many more researchers, there were fewer and fewer peer reviewers, 
So you see the, the disequilibrium here. We have more people that want to publish because they need to advance their careers, and there are fewer and fewer people who actually want to do the peer review because when the articles get retracted, it's a stain on their reputations. This is what I was talking about, open peer review, allowing researchers to know who reviews their papers. So it gets rid of the using yourself, your family members, your fellow, your you know, your, your neighbor as a peer reviewer. So the, uh, the authors know who's reviewing it and the reviewers know whose paper they're actually reviewing. And then what we talked about was medical Wikipedia. So having a curated site where anybody can go on and peer review a paper after the fact to reduce the number of post-retraction post peer reviews. There is one now, I think PubMed or one of the online databases actually has it where you can do an open peer review of a paper after it's out, but you have to already be in the database. In other words, you need to be one. You need to be an author in that database to legitimize your standing to do it. Yes. Sorry, I brought that up. I have a question about that. Um, so that's PubMed Commons, where you have to be. It's exactly what it is. Thank so, you. Um, PubPeer. Um, so that's something that's relatively new that's come out to do these type of post-publication peer reviews. And I was actually at a meeting recently. Full disclosure, I'm a PhD scientist, no law background. Um, but we were just talking about that recently because PubPeer was still is in the news recently about um, uh, essentially anonymous whistleblowers um, going on their site, and now there's a huge fraud suit that's going on, um, still still ongoing, takes a long time. And it was all initiated by that anonymous reviewer, and actually, at the time, even the person who was running PubPeer was anonymous. They were not disclosing their name. They've since done that. Um, so I'm just kind of curious how that fits into the scheme. You can have mechanisms where you have an anonymous whistleblower, essentially, right, um, operating now in this kind of more global post-publication. Well, I think the, the anonymity is definitely an issue, but yeah. the, the problem is if you have to identify yourself as a reviewer and you're saying bad things about the original paper, there could be repercussions and ramifications. So I think, I think it's important to have the reviewers identified, but it also is going to reduce the number of legitimate reviews. So I think, you know, nobody cites Wikipedia as an original source because you have no idea who did it. How would you do it? Oh, no. I'm no, I, I'm, and I'm curious. I mean, this is, this is clearly a work in progress. Yeah. No, I mean, how... I'm a huge fan of it. I actually okay. think it's really, really good. I was just hitting it from the other side of people being very concerned about not, not knowing who your accuser is. Right, um, and that's that's why I asked that because actually I, I think transparency, I mean, huge advocate, transparency, disclosing more, um, actually not even doing peer review. Uh, the BMJ British Medical Journal actually exposes all of their peer review on all accepted articles. So you can see that dialogue. Right. Uh, F one thousand is actually doing full on public peer review. So you publish the paper, then you have peer review in the public. I think those are all very good things. We can talk about BMJ a little bit. Yeah. So this is uh, the faculty senate chamber. Entereth not the sacred place, I probably see it's quite plain, that wears the scarlet letter, the shameful badge of the adjunct. So what should we do? Thank you, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Maybe we need to tag retracted papers. Maybe we need to have the scarlet R on papers. So it's the shepherd's equivalent for medical literature. So when you go online, you look, and there's a big police line, do not cross. This paper is no longer valid. Take it for what it is. If you want to use it as an example of how not to do research, maybe that's the way you do it. Maybe that's the way you do it. You I'm sorry, if a paper's been retracted, it's just still listed on the journal and, and no one knows? 
that's been retracted? In some instances, you have no idea that it's retracted. In some instances, it's, it's poorly marked. And if you go to a library and you pull a journal off the shelf, you have no idea that it's been retracted. So it's difficult for paper. It's less difficult with electronic, but there really isn't a perfect system now. And that's the problem. We really need to come up with a way of marking retracted papers. So here it is, breakfast cereal and iPhones. You've all been waiting for it. So Mark Schreim was a PhD student at Harvard in public policy. And he wrote a paper about how easy it is to get published. He was bombarded with open source medical journal solicitations, pay to publish schemes. He put out 37 submissions in two weeks. And he got back 17 acceptances. His co-opter was actually a computer. Alana, since I know your name, you're going to be the victim. Here's the paper. The problem was he got reviews, and many of the reviews said his paper was novel and innovative. Here's the name of the paper. Why don't you read the name and read the first paragraph? Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs? Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Um, you want me to read the first paragraph? Yeah, the surgical neoplastic robot cocoa extracts in breakfast here is written by Orson Welles and Pinky LeBrain. <laughs> uh, so it says, an intentionally You can do this dramatically, by the way. No, I, I, I've not warmed up. <laughs> an intention dependent on questions on elsewhere, we could trade possible jointure in throwing cocoa. Any rapid event, rapid shall become green. It's something disposing departure, the favorite tolerably engrossed. Truth, short, folly, court, why she, there, false. Okay, you get the picture? <laughs> it's random words. But here's the problem. It is a novelty. It was novel and innovative. It's exactly, it was a novelty. It was bullshit. <laughs> it was total bullshit. But it got published. Okay, so the cage match of credulity, according to some of the folks at Stat News, and this is, a, this is another great website. If, you, if you're on Twitter, Stat News is a phenomenal medical blog. The editor-in-chief is a guy named Rick Burke, who used to be one of the managing editors at the New York Times. It's owned by the Washington Globe, uh, sorry, the Boston Globe. So they described in the last year the cage match of credulity, which was the second Oz reference, Dr. Oz interviewing Donald Trump about his health, okay? So we had to talk about fake news. So here's some more fake academia, and this was just published in December in the New York Times. So Kevin Carey is a journalist, and he was investigating this company called Omix International. There's nobody who owns stock in Omix here. Okay, just wanna make sure, because I'm gonna say some not so nice things about them. So, Kevin got an invitation to the 15th World Cardiology and Angiology Conference in Philadelphia. It sounded really serious. He was invited to submit a paper for the conference, and he said to the person he talked to, you know, I don't have a lot of time to write this paper. It's like in a week. I'm not sure I can get it done. And they said, don't worry about it. Get it in. And he was told that it would be approved on a stat basis, on an expedited basis. Well, the problem is he's not a cardiologist or any other type of physician. He's a policy wonk. So, how was he going to write a paper on cardiology? Well, he did to this growing business of academic publication fraud. This is according to some folks that have looked at the company. They mimic the look and feel of traditional scholarly publications, but without the integrity. The FTC spanked them and basically said this is a for-profit scam. 
conferenceseries.com, that's their website. You can tell because they would have simultaneous conferences at hotels at the same time. So basically, you show up, you rent a hotel, you make up a name, and everybody stands around in front of an empty room, sort of like C-SPAN, and read their papers. And that's the entire thing. And then you can put those papers on your academic resume. So OMIC sponsored the International Conference on Atomic and Nuclear Physics, and another researcher decided they were going to send the paper. They didn't think Dr. Shrine's Cocoa Puffs article was good enough, so they went on their iPhones and used the autocorrect feature. So here's the text of the abstract of the article, and you can see it's gibberish. This paper was accepted. You can make sense out of that, you're better than I. It's quite remarkable. I mean, they, they have no checking whatsoever. Where are these journals located? They are not at the Rotunda at the University of Virginia. Some of them are located in post office boxes. Not to be outdone, some of them are located at strip clubs. <laughs> if you look at their addresses, they actually are, sorry, adult entertainment venues. Here's the problem. The names of the journals sound legit. The International Journal of Pediatric Otorhinolaryngology. Doctor, real or bullshit? Real. How about the Global Journal of Pediatric Otorhinolaryngology? That's bullshit. <laughs> Thank you very much. Fake the first, though. <laughs> you shouldn't publish in the second, though. Fake journals that pay on, they prey on researchers from developing countries, from second and third tier academic there institutions. There are a lot of journals on like this, too. Don't think it's just medical. Oh, I'm sure there are a lot of journals. We get those daily. Oh. Absolutely. You can't get published, so they have pay-to-play journals. And NLM, the National Library of Medicine and PubMed, are not perfect. And the Lancet example is, Lancet, the you know, A-list top five medical journal in the world, has a lot of sister publications. Mm -hmm. Lancet, you know, Lancet Anesthesiology, <coughs> Lancet Physiology, Lancet, and some of those are not in the PubMed database. So they look illegitimate, and when you go to find them, they're not there, so you believe they're illegitimate when, in fact, they're 100% legitimate. So here's the analysis and future implications. 2,200 papers have been retracted. It's a huge number. A huge number. The three researchers we talked about, Fuji, Bolt, and Rubin, more than 13% of the 2,200 papers retracted were theirs. Primary offenders. So what do we need? We need better oversight at the research level, on the front end. Electronic plagiarism checks. It's easy, but nobody's using them when it comes to medical literature. Nobody's using this stuff. It's very simple to use. And more careful peer review. And here's the problem. You can't put out papers where the data looks too good because then people start to question it. So we're much better off with above average data than really good data because people will accept above average data that, that tends to lean in the right direction. And we need to have the scarlet R. We need to have this peer review certification so that when you find an article and you think it's legit and you look at it and say, you know what, vaccines do cause autism, and you find out 15 years later that that's not true, it needs to be branded. Email confirmations. Back to the author. Open peer review and post-publication, like you were talking about with, uh, with PubMed Central, and post-publication review. Regulation of fake journals and conference businesses, a very unregulated business, and it's predatory. That's a huge problem. Okay, last topic, transparency. So what in healthcare is now becoming transparent? There's so many, so many facets of it. 
Anybody? Anybody ever go on health grades? You can find all the information about your doctor, where they went to school, how many malpractice cases they've had against them, if they have any reprimands by any disciplinary actions, you know, un, uh, you know unverified reviews, you know, how many stars does Dr. Siegel get as an oboeringologist? You can find all that stuff. But you can also find out how many papers they published. You can find out what they charge in some instances. So there's, there's a lot of transparency now in pricing and claims history. And the most important thing, and this is the new buzzword, outcomes-based medicine. Doctors are going to be compensated based on their clinical outcomes. So you want to be able to do this. So the Annals of Internal Medicine, a very well-respected journal, took this on. This is a true story. So there's a fourth year humanities class in a medical school. Imagine that. Medical students are now learning humanities. It's astonishing. There was a discussion where the teacher said, let's talk about regrettable behavior and forgiveness as a med student, because a lot of these med students had worked in hospitals and done, done some internships and things. So somebody got up in actually two instances. They both got up and they talked about OBGYN patients who were anesthetized where the gynecologist started talking about issues of misogyny and disrespect and racial and sexual overtones to the conversations to the patients who were already anesthetized. So these med students were in the room, they heard it, so what do you do? You go along with it because you're the lowly second year med students and you don't want to take your attending and you don't want to say, you know, Doc, that's a really bad thing, what you just said. And I don't care whether Mrs. Jones is asleep or not. You don't do that because they're afraid of repercussions and retaliation. So what did they do? They feigned amusement. They laughed. Hey, that's pretty funny. Good job, Doc. Because that was the only thing they really could do. Or was it? Or was it? So the instructor submitted an essay. The, the instructor in the med school class submitted an essay to the Annals of Internal Medicine using his real name, and that's critical. He said, I am Jeff Wall, and I'm writing this because I just taught this class, and this is what happened. And he used the names of everybody else involved. So the Annals of Internal Medicine decided to publish the essay after they de-identified the author for obvious reasons and all the other names in the paper. They had hoped that it would make the reader's stomachs churn. That's what the editor-in-chief said. But this didn't come easy. The editorial board of this very prominent journal actually struggled. Do we do this or not? Do we do the right thing and expose this stuff that's going on that nobody's talking about, or do we just sit on it? So they took a timeout. They actually extended the whole process, and they thought about it, and they decided that it was so disgusting, and it could damage the professor's reputation. And some people said, this is why we should do it. And other people on the editorial board said, this is why we shouldn't do it. So you see the conflict? Happens all the time. So they decided they were going to do it because if they didn't do it, they'd be complicit in this behavior. So here's what they wrote. By shining a light on the dark side of the profession, we emphasize to physicians, young and old, that this behavior is unacceptable. We should not only refrain from personally acting in such a manner, but calling out our colleagues. We need the, stre the strength to act like the anesthesiologist in the story and call our colleagues assholes when that label is appropriate. This is in the Annals of Internal Medicine. This is a legitimate journal. We owe it to ourselves, to our profession, and especially to our patients. 
What do you think of this? Was this the right thing to do, or is this the wrong thing to do? And this is, this is a big question. Gil, what do you think? Do we do this? Or is what happens in the OR stays in the OR? Yeah. Clearly, the professional behavior should be uh, monitored and should be sanctioned if it's appropriate. And the fact that it happens in an audience allows you enough vehicles to make those uh, behaviors sanctioned or monitored. Um, the only question I have about that is I don't think the place is in journals. It's completely irrelevant. The journal part, I think it's irrelevant. The real place, the real forum for that is where things happen. The medical school, the institution, the, the putting the journal part of it is just uh, um, much further, much downstream venue, and that could be only used for purposes of teaching and discussing the issue, but definitely not dealing with any specific case. But where have we heard about this lately, these kinds of incidents? where doctors are doing bad things in hospitals. The lay press. Joan Rivers. Somebody took a selfie with Joan Rivers before she died when she was having whatever procedure she was having. The guy who mistakenly or not mistakenly left his iPhone on record when he was going in for his colonoscopy and he was rather portly and the doctors were making comments about how big this guy was on the table and they needed to get the industrial strength colonoscope to be able to examine his colon. So, I mean, th that's where we're hearing about this. Does anyone think that's a good place? Or, I mean, uh, I think this is a good way to do it. I I'm going to disagree with you, Gil. I, I think we need to start at med schools, but med schools only touch a small percentage of the people downstream from there who need to know about this stuff and need to know that this kind of behavior isn't tolerated. I mean, it was, it was a difficult editorial decision. You know, do we do it, do we not? And, and and there are some people who think that this whole thing actually could have been made up. There's no way to actually legitimize it except for one thing. The doctor, the, the, the facilitator from the med school class submitted it under his own name. If he had submitted it anonymously, like we talked about with peer review, that would probably make it more challenging. But the fact that he did it himself and put his name out there probably legitimizes it. So I'm going to steal this from the TSA in the New York City Police Department. So the rule is if you see something, say something. Blow the whistle. Because the study that you find to be a problem from a medical standpoint, from a legal standpoint, from a bioethics standpoint, if you don't say something about it, people are going to die. 30 million people taking hydroxyethyl starch were getting bad kidneys and were getting increased risk of sudden death from getting that medication. But somebody stepped up and did something about it. And that's the lesson here, which is whether it's pre-publication peer review, post-publication peer review, or somebody who just, you read something and it just doesn't make sense. You need to step up and do that. It's really, really important. Thank you very much. Questions? I think we have three minutes. And have some discussion on the merits, on the ideas, not on specifics, but more general observations. Yes, sir. You mentioned the autism study. I assume that that's the Wakefield study that you're citing. That is the Lancet Wakefield study. And are you aware that some of the retractant, the work that was done on the retraction, has now been questioned as being associated with the industry? Yes. And that just within the last couple of days, Robert Kennedy and uh, um, and uh, Robert De Niro yes. have offered a hundred thousand dollars for anyone who can prove that mercury in vaccines is safe. Right. There's no absolutes in medicine, clearly. And when you look at the competitive aspects of it, perhaps. 
and not only in the publication, but in, a, in, in the interests of the various parties. When you look at them, you realize they got disparate interests. Retraction isn't necessarily the last word. And that's exactly what you're talking about. That, that if uh, a paper that became retracted because there was a, a groundswell of opposition to it, uh, it doesn't mean that that's a forever thing. I, that's a very salient point. And I, and I you know, I, it, it's, not, it's not a roadblock. I think it's a speed bump. So there may be there may be ways of going back and re-reviewing even a retraction, and that's a that, that raises an interesting ethical question. Here's another case of it. Um, there was uh, several years ago now a study in France by uh, Dr. Seralini and his team that was looking at the at the dangers related to Monsanto's um, pesticide uh, herbicide and Roundup. That, that paper was retracted under pressure from the industry. Um, and then it was republished a couple of years later in an open source journal. And, but then Seralini took the issue to the courts. And now he's won like three or four court cases against his accusers. Well, that's what we were talking about, that, that it just never ends. Yeah. That's the problem. I mean, that's, and that's why people don't want to step up. They don't want to do the right thing. Because it does result in protracted litigation, and, and that's a huge problem. Jeff, I, I would like to say two things, if I may just jump sure. in first. First of all, just want to put for the law students the perspective of the size. Um, you, you mentioned 2,000 retractions since 1970 to 2012. And that same amount of time, I would assume, uh, thinking about something like between two to 6,000, no, sorry, between four to 10,000 journals published a year. Yes. So think of the percentage of those attractions, they amend something around the single digits. Correct. Or even less. So uh, the vast majority of science, uh, and like you said, with all those attractions, 13% belong to three or four people. So uh, overall, the vast, completely vast, that could be a statistical error even if you want, on personal behavior. So that should be the first perspective. Uh, um, and, that can, and therefore, it can happen throughout other industries as well. You, like you said, rightfully, we need to put it in place even those um, uh, for those outliers the mechanism to catch them. That's number one. The second thing, I think a disclaimer is about with the, uh, with the ties with the industry is something that is completely un, uh, undone properly. In the sense that, I mean, the lectures, everything, so, okay, I do this, my disclaimer, I this fun line, if you blab it, 30 seconds and you go into lectures. Is that anything relevant? Does it create something that is worthwhile? And vice versa, the fact that you got money from the industry, is that does that cloud or, uh, or, or bias your study? So clearly we don't, we, didn't, we don't have a good scheme in place to take care of that. Disclaimers, it's typical, but solves absolutely nothing on, on the merits of the, of the conflict of interest. And therefore, I mean, the only way really to go about it is once this research is funded by an uh, interest uh, commercial entity, once that is disclosed, then that study should go to a, like you said, a third party impartial review. Uh, um, because just relying on disclaimer. Right. The, the problem is if we didn't use industry funding for research, yeah, research would grind to a halt. That's what I'm saying. Yes. So there's two sources NIH so and private exactly. industry. You have to have that research. You have to do it, but you have to you have to identify when you are in a potential conflict of interest and clear that conflict. Right, having a, a neutral reviewer evaluated who does not bear that conflict—that's the way to do it. Yes. 
You used a lot of examples of anesthesiologists yes. in your um, lecture. And of course, it's a really small sample size. You maybe four examples. And I was wondering if, there, if you found any statistical discrepancy in the publication of falsified reports between different medical specialties. And if so, um, do you think that relates to uh, difference in the motivating factors to publish between different specialties? That's a great question. Your, your observation is correct. Um, the first two versions of this talk were delivered to anesthesia programs, so you're correct about that. But there seems to be, there's a disclaimer, and I just finished writing a chapter in the seminal textbook on pediatric anesthesiology, so you're correct. But there appears to be, and I don't know what the statistics are, but there appear to be clumps of anesthesiologists who have done research whose research has been debunked, and I don't know how big the delta is between anesthesia providers and non-anesthesia providers. So it's a great question. I don't have an answer for you, but your observation was correct. The answers don't have anesthesia. Yes? Um, just out of curiosity, you've done a lot of research in this area. What do you, what do you see as the way the um, law could help prevent these kinds of things? Well, I think it's a... I think there needs to be some regulation on these bogus journals, and I'm not sure quite what you need to do that. But to be able to put out Pinky and LeBrain and Norse and Wells in some journal that somebody's going to find yeah, and no think is believe, legit, right? nobody's going to believe that. But there, but right. But the problem is there are enough of those journals, and you know people are applying for jobs in in all kinds of academia, putting those down. And unless you do a real careful flyspeck of what those journals are, you don't know that they're illegitimate, as we talked about with Lancet. I mean, there, there's a lot of that going on. But I think this, this the closest thing is probably regulating these, these um, conference companies, because they're just taking people's money and actually providing no science whatsoever. I, I don't know that there's any way to regulate peer review. I think that would be more challenging. I think, uh, you know, with with the whole transparency issue, and we're going to be talking about that at 3.30 with respect to NIH-funded studies and transparency with the new common rule and the new final rule where all the results of NIH-funded studies now need to be registered. So every NIH study starting on April 18th, is a preview of coming attractions, starting on April 18th, every one of the $32 billion of NIH-funded studies needs to be registered on clinicaltrials.gov so that patients can go find studies and enroll, which raises an interesting question. And the results have to be reported, which I think is the biggest part of transparency. So previously, and we'll talk about the stats later on, is something like 40% of all NIH-funded research is never published and is never reported. Why? Because they get bad results. Or they never reach their enrollment targets. So you need 100 people for your study, you only get five, so you take your NIH money and you wash it out and you never publish your study. So that's something we need to talk about. I'm not sure there's a solution. I, I think it has to come on the, on the front end. I don't know that there's a back-end solution legislatively. Do you have an idea about that? No, but I... I mean, it's challenging. Yeah, I chair the Research Misconduct Investigation Committee for the medical school, um, coming to the end of my term. But, you know, we, we come across this fabrication, falsification, not a lot here. Um, but, you know, you sit there and you just think, how could this have happened? There's certainly bad people, 
Um, but some of this other stuff, the other pressures that you're talking about are real, right? And so you kind of make up a couple patients to finish a study. You know, that's never caught. Right. I, I'm more worried about the, the research that becomes part of the evidence base that then we physicians rely on when we're treating, right? right? It gets put into meta-analyses and all this stuff. I'm not worried about cocoa puffs because, right. you know, that's never going to kill anybody. Right. Right? And so, but it's the other stuff that I think is really, really important. And, uh, and th there's a sea change. It's a, it's a great point coming from the research side of things. With the new um, final rule with the NIH, they're allowing central IRBs to run all the NIH studies. So instead of having multi-site, so UVA has their own IRB, the Investigational Review Board. They're the Human Subjects Protection Board. So they have their own, and UNC Chapel Hill has their own, and Harvard has their own, and, and they don't talk, and they don't always follow the same uh, preferences and things. So NIH is now saying you can use one. And I think that's going to help because having a central IRB that will look at all the multitude of sites will be able to catch inconsistencies from the various sites. And I, I think that's a good way of doing it. It's going to put local IRBs out of business for NIH-funded studies, I think. But it, I think that's a, a good way of checking on the legitimacy of assuming that the IRBs are legitimate, uh, the legitimacy of multi-site studies. Do you have a suggestion? Sorry. Can I go ahead? Um, so with the FDA, so studies that are done by pharmaceuticals for FDA approval, yes. right, also have problems with um, mis research misconduct. Right. But those data are trade secrets, right? They're proprietary to the companies. So there then is no, and, and the FDA is not allowed to say, right, if those are falsified. Yes. Um, so do you have a suggestion for that, because it seems like there's no incentive then for the company to really look that hard or do anything um, about those studies. It's a great point. And, and is there a legal remedy for that? Well, with NIH, again, I'm focusing on that, on that a little bit, they're holding hands with the FDA. So they're funding the studies, they want to see the results, and the FDA is doing the monitoring on those studies. There is an exception in the new rule about trade secrets. So this, you need to register so you can enroll patients and you need to publish so we see the results, good, bad, and ugly. If you can establish the proprietary nature of the data, you're exempt from the, uh, the NIH recording requirements. And of course, that was part of a compromise. It's any, anything with rulemaking. You have varied interests. The patients want one thing. The IRB people want one thing. The FDA wants one thing. The pharma manufacturers were like, we don't want more regulation. We don't want to have to protect. We want to protect. We don't want to have to publish our proprietary stuff. So that's going to be a challenge, I think, for a long time. The NIH is also encouraging companies to publish their results in peer-reviewed medical literature, which I think was how it was for a long time. You didn't report your results as often as the NIH would have liked you to. You put it out in a journal, and you have a big press release and a blast, and the whole world hears about what you're doing. But now you have to publish everything, except if it's trade secret. But in that sense, uh, the fact that you have to really go through the FDA process, you will. To the FDA. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so but that, that, in that sense, that is at least a reasonable level of scrutiny within the data. Right. But there have been some recent studies that have come out that said, so the FDA, when they do their, investiga their investigation of a drug, right, they find some falsified data. They pull it out of the FDA analysis. 
but they don't report it to the journal because it's a trade secret. Correct. So the published journal articles still have those falsified so, data right, in them. The, the those journal articles that put into the meta-analysis. Right, so the FDA right. sends out a 483 letter that says, Dear Principal Investigator, you did a bad job because you didn't consent this person or you didn't do this, right. but it never gets the light of day. That's the problem. Right, and so it's still that, in the peer-reviewed literature. So that's, correct. I'm just, you know, there's no way for the medical establishment to regulate this, but you guys can do something about this. Right? Hopefully. Yes. So, yeah, so I've got comments to make. Um, sure. So one, so just kind of, so it's actually on that point. So one thing is, you brought up Stat News. I really like Stat a lot. One of the first articles they had published a year and a half ago was actually talking about the lack of compliance with connecting clinical data with um, the registries, which is essentially what's now being expanded. So I guess it's back to the thing of, if you tell a journal, hey, there's a problem. And there's not just that one guy, um, Compare Trials is another great one, is that Ben Goldacre is doing that. Right. They don't do anything. Like, nobody's fixing this. And so it's the same thing, like, just because you tell people to register, I'm, I'm curious about, like, that solution, which is, I think transparency is a big in, but if nobody's required, if you have a requirement and nobody's checking it, nobody's enforcing the penalties, which can be really high to pharma, to, to medical schools, then what's the incentive to do it? Because it's a lot of work. So well, I'm curious like, how that it's, fits. It's a great question. So Dr. Kerry Walinitz, who is the Deputy Director of Policy for NIH, is going to be our guest at 3.30. And she's going to Skype in from Bethesda. So if you want to come and ask that question to a policy wonk who is involved in creating the final rule, which is not even effective, that would be a great question. How do you do that? I mean, where, where, does, it, where does it balance out? Right. And I think right. she would have a terrific answer. You have those tools at hand, just for example, Medicare, Medicaid, but a very strong policy. So if they put in a regulation, an institution, an hospital, or provider fails to meet those, the financial stake is really tough. So easily the NIH can create those, those list of penalties and then follow through. It's just, just a matter of determination. You want to do it or not. That's why I follow up. The point is very, very, very important. It's very strong. I wanted to make one small point because this kind of gets what I'm, what we're interested in. Just goals here. Um, yes. is, there's this. I think what makes this really even challenging is fraud is this extreme example of intent mischaracterization. I think there's this huge spectrum because all research is incredibly difficult, um, and so irreducible research does not imply fraudulent research. And I think that's what it doesn't mean that you should get it connected out. I think the more that you can expose that is good. But I just wanted to raise that one point myself that. I think that's very important that this is a small part, that there's a bigger part, and that some results don't hold. It doesn't mean that they were fraudulent, because there was no intent. Right, and that's the same thing with the conflict of interest. I mean, some people might innocently neglect to, let's see, um, Steve Mnuchin forgot to list $100 million of his assets when he was going for confirmation in front of the Senate. Was that intentional, or was that, uh, you know, deceptive or, or not. You know, I, I, the point is well taken. I mean, I'm showing the extremes because the innocent, you know, bad data crunching doesn't make for interesting discussion. So. But the, the, the final bottom line on this is that there is no requirement in the law that independent objective researchers duplicate the results. Correct. There's no requirement. The point of publishing results is you want somebody to be able to replicate them, but the, the fact is marking a study as being retracted prevents somebody from duplicating the same bad study. So if there's something wrong, so it's the difference between replication and duplication. If there's something wrong with the study, you want to make sure that nobody goes out and takes 
industry money or, or federal taxpayer money and does the same bad study which may have adverse health consequences and, and uh, legacy consequences in the literature. So. I think it'd be great to continue discussion informally, but we have to clean up the room. Got it. So, uh, Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah.